Good morning. Scripture this morning will be read from Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 38 through 42. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from the perverse generation. So then those who received his word were then baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. This morning, it's good to be out. Can you hear me? Nope, nope, nope. Can you hear that? All right. It's good to see you all. I uh, I think I'm F. Is is my mic? Um, let me get just a second. I didn't do all this. There you go. Can you hear that? Okay. So it is good to be here. If you all haven't met our new son, his name's Matthias. He's a chunky little guy over here. Uh, so you can say hi to him. And of course, Meredith here and my other son, Thaddeus. Uh, but it's been good to be here this week and to see everybody. And every time I come to South Georgia, I thank God for air conditioning. Uh, um, Dorothy, I need to thank you for doing my PowerPoints. I, I can't even keep up with myself. So I'm glad she's a speed reader and can do that. Um, so thank you. Um, has anybody gained the quarantine 15? Okay, a few of you have gained the quarantine 30. So, um, so the other day I'm talking to Meredith, and, 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 and I, I was just kind of down, and I, and I said, you know, I've gained this weight since quarantine. I've gained the quarantine 15, and, 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 and she said, oh, it's okay. You know, you're, I still love you, and keep your chin up. And so I raised my head, and she said, no, the other one. <laughs> took some of you a second <laughs> there's a plaque on a church in England and it says in 1653 when all things sacred were demolished or profaned Sir Robert Shirley built this church to do the best things in the worst of times 17th century England was about the worst of times that you would see King Charles was tried for treason and then beheaded by his own people injustice was everywhere riots were everywhere uprisings were everywhere civil war was everywhere they went through three plagues way worse than what we're seeing and then they endured the great fire of London on top of all that on, on and, and at this time churches were being blamed for everything they were being burned they were being shut down all because the Catholics were blaming the Protestants and the Protestants were blaming the Catholics and it was a dark time yet during this dark time Sir Robert Shirley used the things that God gave him, and, and he built a church. He invested in the kingdom of God. He did the best thing that he knew to do in the worst of times. Thus, I would ask us this morning, what are we doing? In a dark time, in a dark time for a country as us right now, we, we could even say everything around us is being profaned. Everything. Yet the question remains, are we doing the best of things in the worst of times, for Sir, Robert, for, for Sir Robert Shirley, he built a church. And they've used this church for over 350 years. Now, that church building is a tool. It's a tool used for God. That's what our church buildings are. The, the part of the building right now that we're in, most people would call your sanctuary. 
And then you have your baptistry. You have your baptistry rooms. You have your communion table. A lot of churches have communion tables, and a lot of them put elegancy into them. They have, they have like carved grapes and, and all this stuff, and they spend tens of thousands of dollars on them. And, and, and it's funny because all the, the communion tables I see that are used the least have the most put into them. You ever notice that? But, but your communion table here, it's, it's not amazing. I mean, whoever built it, it's very well built. It's functional. It's, it's functional. It's, it's thin. It could easily be moved or carried. It's, it's a functional table. And, and pretty much that's your church as a whole. I don't see a lot of statues or crosses or, or stained glass windows or any windows for that point. But, but I, don't, I don't see all this. Your church, your church is very functional. You see, you didn't build it to be impressive. You built it to be useful. Yeah, so many people love to shape their buildings, and, and they want them bigger and bolder and more beautiful, and, and, and this and that. And I think you love to shape your building. How is your building shaping you? Thus, you all who worship here are not in love with a building. You're in love with the builder. But you have to use the brick and mortar to serve him. A church with mostly elderly members desperately, desperately wanted to get the younger families and, and, and younger people and members. And so, so after having the old church sign up for about five years, they decided to, to change this church sign. This church, they, they, they thought, we need young people. And once completed, one of the older members looked at the other older member and said, there you go, Leroy. This will dispel the myth that we're an elderly congregation that doesn't know how to reach the younger generations. Guess what the church sign said? Whippersnappers, welcome. <laughs> now, before you were shut down, you did all kinds of things here with your building, didn't you? You probably, well, you had services. You had classes. You probably had potlucks, am I right? Okay, amen. Fellowship events. Probably graduation ceremonies. Vacation Bible schools. Did you do that? Did somebody say no about graduation ceremonies? Not this year. Okay, you had other fun-loving stuff. You used your building. So looking back at the past few months, the question is why? Why did you do all that? Why did you use the building in, in, in the way that you did? Well, you did it because the building is a tool designed to accomplish God's goals, God's works. You think, all right, all right, all right, preacher, your first Sunday back and forever, and the first thing you do is make a broad statement like that. The building is used for God's goals. Well, well this could be a thousand things. What goals? I'm glad you asked. First goal, you, to use this building to go. To go. You use this building kind of like a, a launching pad to do the, the, the will of God. Did anybody watch the SpaceX launch a couple weeks ago? Yeah, me neither, but I heard it was pretty cool. You see, the goal of the church is to reach people so they know what to do. And this is your launch. Sam, I think there went your lizard. So... This building is to be the launching pad for that go, for to, to, to go. And, and so that's what, it, what it's for. The goal of the church is to, to reach people who don't know what to do. You're like, well, wait, 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 wait right here, young buck. The church isn't a building. The people is the church, absolutely, but the building is still a tool. The church is the people, the church is the gathering, and the church is the scattering. That's what the church is. But we have to start somewhere. We have to meet somewhere. We have to meet fellow Christians and learn, thus, the building. And you can think, well, let me interrupt you again. You said the church is to reach people who don't know what to do. How do you know they don't know what to do? Well, easy. Because sinners haven't known what to do since the very first day the church was started. The scripture reading this morning was from Pentecost. Fifty days after Jesus' crucifixion, God gets their attention. 
Peter preached that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the Son of God, and he was crucified, and then he was raised from the dead. And, and then he tells the crowd that they were guilty of killing Jesus, that they butchered him on a cross, and it was their fault that he died. And they were so convicted. What did they shout out? What shall we do? And guess what? People are shouting the same thing today. What shall we do? They don't know what to do. They, they don't. That, that, that's that's the, the things they've done and things they've thought and, and things they've said and places they've been. It makes them cringe inside and they don't like themselves. So if they don't like themselves, why would God even like them? They can't even get along with themselves. Thus the church is to go to these people and bring them to Christ because they're in a state in which they do not know what to do. So we bring them into fellowship with other believers. And that starts with your church building. Think of John Newton. Most of you all probably heard this story. John Newton was the author of Amazing Grace. He was about as evil as, it, as a person could get before he became a Christian and a minister. He loved drinking and gambling and prostitutes. He cussed like a sailor because he was a sailor. In fact, he was a very skilled sailor. He was so skilled in sailing that he became one of the nastiest slave traders in the world. Yet one day someone decided to get up and go and took him the message of Jesus Christ. But where did John Newton begin to change? The church building. Where did he grow with other believers? The church building. Where did he later work as a minister? The church building. The ch all this, John, John Newton did all this because someone decided, I'm going to go. You think, oh, okay, okay, preacher, you're trying to guilt us here. You named one person, name another. Okay, how about this guy? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a prosecutor and a violent man, I have shown mercy because I have acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was poured out on me abundantly along with his faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So Paul's saying he was worse than John Newton. But for this reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So Paul's there as an example for us. He was like the, the top dog, the leader in the church of the time, yet he was still an example. Jesus showed mercy to Paul to prove that it could be done. The apostle Paul was one of the worst sinners ever changed by Christ. He admits that himself. But he was also, apostle Paul proved his go over and over and over. He was a leader who wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. Years ago, a corporal was put in charge of taking a few privates and digging a big trench. And so he selected some privates and he went out to complete the task. And while they were slaving away, the corporal was up here barking orders at the privates. About that time, a man on horseback with a long overcoat came along and he saw what was going on. And he said to the corporal, Corporal, are you going to help your men dig this trench? And replying, the corporal said, if I get my hands dirty, who will oversee the work? And so the man jumped off his horse, took off his long overcoat, and began to help them dig. That's when the corporal realized this was none other than General George Washington in the trench with a bunch of privates while this corporal was standing on the sidelines as clean as a whistle. You see, the best thing about those willing to get dirty is you get to see the fruits of the labor. And this is why the church exists, to get into the trenches and, and to do the best that we can in the worst of times, to continually do the best we can in the worst of times, to get in the trenches and, and tell people that God loves you no matter what you've done and no matter where you've been and no matter how you've acted and, and no matter what, no matter what, Jesus can, can, can forgive the worst of sinners, myself included. You know, one of the reasons why I love Christianity is because in my worst of times, they're the only ones that would accept me. They were. All other religions I had to get right before approaching their God. 
Christianity used their God to get me right. Huge difference. And one of my favorite things about being a Christian is being here and worshiping with those of like faith every Sunday morning. First this morning, one of the goals of this building is to be a launching pad for your go, for your spiritual go. Second, another goal is to use this to help ourselves and others grow. We go, and in our go, we grow. That means the church exists to help people mature after they've been saved. You see, we're not just building a building. The building is where God is building us. But here's the thing. We're not going to be perfect. Sometimes we're going to be wrong. But that's part of growing pains. When I was 16 years old, I went to take my driver's test, the, the, the fill-out test, not the, the one behind the wheel. And one of the questions was, if you came to a four-way stop and four cars are parked there, who gets to go first? Well, I was kind of confused, so I picked C. Isn't that what you do? You pick C. So I pick C, the guy with the jacked-up truck and gun rack with bumper sticker that says, guns don't kill people, I do. I thought that's who goes first, right? That was a fairly good answer, but I was wrong. Sometimes in life, we're going to be wrong. We're going to be wrong. But through it we learn, and through it we grow. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So apostles' teachings, that's sermons, Bible studies, classes, fellowship. That means being together as, as a group of people, breaking of bread. That was a term, of course, for Lord's Supper or communion. And prayers, well, that's an easy one. That's prayers. So notice, these are the things that the church did. These are the things. Fellowship. Bible study, sermons, break bread, prayer. Also notice, these early Christians spent a lot of time together in this. I, I, I've known people that if you go over the allotted hour in church, they get up and leave. It's like, wow, is your faith that weak? These, these early church Christians, they spent their lives together. They spent time together throughout the week praying and eating and, and reading and studying. But on Sunday, they got together as a group, and they did it all over again and again and again. In addition, Sunday was a day set aside for the Lord's Supper. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Back in the 1700s, there was an atheist named Voltaire who despised Christianity. Now, I'm not sure, but I think this is a dude. Um, but, but he despised Christianity. And he once said, if you want to kill Christianity, you must abolish Sunday. Why? Why abolish Sunday? Think about this. We can pray any day of the week. We can study any day of the week. We can be together any day of the week. We can fellowship any day of the week. We, we can visit every day of the week. We can do all this Monday through Saturday, but Sunday is unique. Sunday is a day we're commanded to take part in communion, the Lord's Supper. As a result, the early church embraced Sunday as this is our day of worship. But you see, Voltaire, as evil as he slash she was, he slash she was right. If you forget the sacrifice of Christ, there goes your religion. Remember, the sacrifice helps us go, and it helps us grow. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, we come together to break the bread. And that continued for years and years and years and years and years afterwards. Eighty years after the church started, Justin Martyr wrote the following words. Now, now this is literally like right around 100 B.C. Listen to what he wrote. On Sunday... A meeting is held for all who live in the cities and villages, and a section is read from the apostles and the writings of the prophets as time permits. When the reading is finished, the president, that's cool, preacher, you can call me president if you want. The president gives the ad admonition and exhortation to imitate those noble things. 
Afterwards, we arise and offer a prayer. At the close of prayer, bread and wine are given, and the congregation answers, Amen. The consecrated elements are distributed and partaking by, partaken by those in attendance. That sounds like church, doesn't it? That's exactly what it was. So, so why is Sunday so important? Well, what about getting together makes a church so strong? Well, it's like a clock in our lives. It helps us to understand what time it is. So let's, let's bring this together. We have, a, we have a church building. We have set times to be ready for church building and worship. Why? Because we want to be here. We want to fellowship together. We want to learn. We want to grow. And then from here, we want to go. But without it, it's impossible. It, without Sundays, it's impossible because our inner clocks are thrown off. We'll be out of sync if we avoid church. We can't avoid God's time and expect our time to flow smoothly. Thus, the church puts our clocks back in time, and it gives us the, the hope of not being alone because we're there with Christ, and we're there with God, and we're there with our fellow believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So therefore, Sunday is also a day of proclamation. It's a day of the week that we, we, we preach, that we believe in Jesus Christ, but you might not always like it. Sometimes it may hurt a little bit. You see, people used to go to church and hear the truth and, and weep over their sins. And today, so many times people go to church and they hear a motivational speech and they ignore their sins. And that's not growth. That's self-satisfaction. Therefore, when we're faithful in our gathering and we, we preach to one another and that, that, that Jesus means something to us, we grow. We take it and we, we grow. You want to tell the world by your actions that Jesus Christ means nothing to you? Let me see you at Walmart on Sunday, or on Saturday, but not on church on Sunday. You know, unlike me, that mask goes both ways. But that's why we stress worship. That's why we stress communion. That's why we stress fellowship. That's why we stress Bible study. That's why we stress prayer, because they help us grow. And for you all, it starts right here in this church building in Lake Park, Georgia. Catching up. Our first goal is to use this church building to go. Your second goal is to use your church building to grow. The third is you use this church building to glow. Now, I'm not talking about drinking dirty water from the Chattahoochee and, and glowing in the dark. I'm talking about letting our light shine before others. Remember, people out here are, are shouting, What must I do? And we're here to show them. And while, while our faith is stirred and, and, and motivated inside these walls, our faith is nurtured inside hospital walls or prison walls or neighborhood walls or friends' walls. Thus, we use the building as a launching pad to go and help others, including self, to grow. All the while doing it, we must leave this place and glow. When I was in a college intern, I was at the Bellevue Church of Christ just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And, and this was a very, very, very rich church. Their weekly offering was over $100,000 a week. Yeah, yeah. Now, I could have had a great job there, but somebody didn't want to live, leave Ohio. Oh, Meredith. So, um, anyway, where was I? Oh, yeah, filthy rich church. This church was filthy, filthy rich. And, and, and they, had, they had six elders, five of them were millionaires, one was a farmer. And, and so every, every week I had to, like, give them a report of what I did that week. And it had to be impressive. 
These were all like CEOs and owners of businesses and companies. And, and, and so I couldn't just say I preached and taught two classes. I had to impress them with what I did. So one week, I didn't really do much that week, but go fishing. You're in Tennessee. You're going to go fishing. So, so anyway, I put, well, I single-handedly managed a successful upgrade and development of a new environmentally, environmentally friendly illumination system above the pulpit. This was completed with zero overruns and zero safety incidents. I used to be in the military. I know how to like, fill these things out. Well, all the elders and multi-million dollar businessmen, they're like, what? All right, good job. All that in one week, well done. And they were impressed, except one. Guess which one was not too impressed? The farmer. And he said, will you repeat that? And I said, I single-handedly managed a successful upgrade and development of a new environmentally friendly illumination system above the pulpit. And he walked out and looked in the pulpit, came back and said, we got a winner this time, boys. He can change a light bulb. I just wanted to get my glow on. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. You, put, you want to put it high on a stand so it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So by seeing you glow, they glorify God. This morning, you have a lot of members who cannot be here to worship at the building right now. You have a lot who just choose not to. At where I preach, same way. A lot of people kind of went into a fade. And, and we understand for some of them, unless you're, unless you're young and not compromised, there's really no excuse. But for older members who are at risk, we, we know they've given their lives to Jesus Christ, and we thank them for that. We miss them. But we know of all people, they're the ones that long to be here to worship with us. But because of members like that, your church can glow outside of these walls. Do you know why? Because of the fellowship we followed since day one of the church. One more time, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, is something odd here? You know, we, we see this, we see teaching and fellowship, communion, prayer. But it's like, if I was gone, I think I would have put fellowship at the end. To me, it, it, I mean, I like it, but it doesn't seem as important, right? I mean, don't get me wrong, I love fellowship, but fellowship's not really an element of worship, is it? It's a byproduct of worship, right? No, because, it's, because communion and prayer depend on fellowship. The first item on the list in Acts 2.42 is the apostles' teachings. That means God-breathed teachings from God. That's, that's the Bible, God's Word. And without the foundation, we would be no different than the Lions Club. Nothing against the Lions Club, but, but without it, but we've been called to a higher purpose. Without correct teaching, fellowship would be false. It would be a social gathering. Without correct teaching, communion would be false. It would be a snack. Without correct teaching, prayers would be false. They would be, they, they would be appeals to a, to a silent God. Therefore, true worship must have correct teaching at its core. We've all been raised with that. We know that. That's why it's first on the list. And if, if you get out and, and, and you get your glow... You realize this. You think, okay, okay, come on now, preacher. Nobody's arguing that. You said you wouldn't have put fellowship second on the list, but never told us why. What just happened? I'm getting there, but I wanted you to understand why the apostles' teachings must come first. And again, we all, we, we were raised with this. In a nutshell, without correct teaching, you cannot have the rest. So then, why is fellowship the second command ever given in the history of the church? Literally, this is day one of the church. Well, honestly, you will never go, you will never grow, and you will never glow without fellowship. You cannot be a Christian of one. So first, let's look at fellowship and communion. Think about the church at Corinth. 
There was no fellowship. They mistreated each other. They mistreated their congregation and different members. Nobody shared with what they had. They were like pigs in a pig trough. Everyone plunged in their meals without thought of all those who ate. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul rebukes them. Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number have fallen asleep. But if you were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. When we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you gather to eat, you should eat together. That's fellowship, right? The church at Corinth abused and misused each other, and so God got angry. They mistreated the fellowship, so God mistreated them. They grew weak, and they grew sick, and they died. In other words, God despised their communion. Are you catching this? Fellowship is critical for God to accept our communion. And Corinth proves that to us. Thus, you cannot deny fellowship while trying to commune. Next, consider the importance of fellowship with prayer. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as heirs with you of the gracious gift. I skipped that other part on purpose. Be mad at the author, not the reader. <laughs> Husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker vessel and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Did you notice this one? If a husband doesn't treat his wife right, his prayers are hindered, correct? Yes. If he doesn't treat his wife right, God will not listen to his prayers. Now, what is the church? Well, you can say, thank you. Somebody said it. The church is the bride of Christ. Right, so if... If someone mistreats your bride, are you going to listen to them? If someone mistreats the bride, is God going to listen to their prayers? You can't even treat your fellow brothers and sisters, husband or wife, with respect. Is God going to listen to your prayers? No, therefore, without fellowship, we're wasting our time in communion and prayer. You cannot have proper communion and prayer without fellowship, and the Bible proves it. Thus I ask, do you want to truly go and grow and glow. If you want to say yes, you must embrace fellowship. True story. A church had his closing night of vacation Bible school, and in the group was a, a boy who had only come for one night of VBS, and you could easily tell this boy because he was missing one of his hands. And the teacher of a, the Bible class was setting up the closing activity and didn't know that the little boy with one hand came in, and one of the activities she had planned for her group to, to do at the end of the night for all the parents watching was, was to, to, to form the church building, you know, with your hands. Here's the church, here's the steeple, open it up, it's all the people. You all know what I'm talking about. But that night as a lady told the children, now let's build our churches, here's the church, here's the steeple, and then suddenly in horror she realized what she had just done. Over here on the side was a boy who couldn't build a church because he only had one hand. But in the awkward silence that followed, the boy next to him put his hand up and said, here, let's build the church together. Brothers and sisters, that's what fellowship is all about. Fellowship is about building the church together because it means we need each other. It declares that you are vital to my faith and I am vital to your faith and I cannot commune and I cannot be in proper prayer without proper fellowship first. If I don't care about you, why am I going to care about God? 
and vice versa. See, there's many who have done things and thought things and said things that make them cringe inside. They don't like themselves. And so if they don't like themselves, why would God even like them? They're not very glowing. In fact, they're quite the opposite of glowing. They're gloomy and doomy, and, and they're past haunts, and they're not sure if they can do anything to, to fix anything in life. And, and they're broken. At Pentecost, they faced the same thing. They were broken. They just killed God, literally. And, and so they wondered, what could they do? And they shout out, what shall we do? Now, what did Peter say? Ha, 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 nothing, you worthless scumbags. Every one of you are going to burn. Ha, ha, ha. No, Peter told them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You just murdered Christ. Repent of it, and he's going to come back and give you the greatest gift in world history. That's the point of this. The church has a message. You can change your life. You can't change your life by repenting of your past and being willing to live for Jesus Christ. Except that you can't do anything to earn your forgiveness. So stop trying and bury your sins in a watery grave and rise up to a newness of life. That's what it's all about. These are the things that this church believes. You believe that God loves you. Therefore, you need to go to those who need it. You believe that God wants to change you. Therefore, you need to grow and help others do the same. And you believe that God forgave your sins. So you can be a light to the world. Therefore, you need to glow. And your launching pad for your go and your grow and your glow is right here in this building at the Lake Park Church of Christ. So don't forget your fellowship. But with that fellowship, are you choosing to do the best of things during the worst of times? If not, change that today as together we stand and sing.